This is Dropped Among This Crowd, a podcast that dives into the music and community of improvisational progressive rock band, Umphreys McGee. Each week will feature a rotating schedule of insightful full show recaps, interviews with fellow Umphreaks, members of Team UM, as well as other musicians who have been inspired by and or played with the band. This is your place for all the latest news and happenings within the world of Umphreys, helping keep you informed on what's been recently released or where you can catch the next show. I'm your host, Sarah Jahimiak. Thanks for joining me as we dive in. Are you prepared for what comes next? Hey everyone, thank you so much for joining me for this week of Dropped Among This Crowd. I hope you were able to check out last week's episode where I welcomed 12-year-old guitar player Ian Mainhart to the show. Ian and I talked about playing guitar. He shared a few of his favorite guitarists. He talks about what it was like meeting Jake, Ryan, and Joel. And he shares what Umphreys McGee song got him interested in the band. There's also video of our little chat, so head on over to the show's YouTube page or my personal Instagram if you'd like to check that out. There is a link to both, as well as where you can listen to the audio of the episode in the show notes. Thank you again to Ian and his dad, Rich, for their time. It was so awesome chatting with both of you. Before we dive in, I want to share with you an amazing offer exclusively for my listeners from audible.com. Audible.com allows you to choose from thousands of audiobook titles to download that you can listen to offline anytime, anywhere. The app is free to download and can be installed on all smartphones and tablets. And something I thought was awesome, you can listen across devices without losing your spot. Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment and audiobooks, ranging from bestsellers to celebrity memoirs, news, business, and personal development. Every month, members receive one credit to pick any title from a number of genres and subjects, two Audible originals from a monthly selection, and access to daily news from the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post, as well as guided meditation programs. Also, if you can't decide what you want to listen to, don't worry. You can keep your monthly credits for up to a year and use them to binge on a whole series later if you'd like. I personally love reading personal development books and biographies about musicians, which I'm sure is not a surprise to hear. I've listened to some really great ones using Audible. A few that I loved were The Five Second Rule by Mel Robbins, Girl Wash Your Face by Rachel Hollis, You Are a Badass by Jen Sinchiro, and some incredible biographies like The Dirt, The Motley Crue Story, Gold Dust Woman about Stevie Nicks, and Life by Keith Richards, which was absolutely phenomenal, and I seriously recommend that book to every music fan that I know. No matter what your favorite genre, Audible has something you'll enjoy. Head to audibletrial.com slash dropped among this crowd and you'll receive a 30-day free trial of Audible and a free audiobook of your choice. A perfect way to snag that book you've been meaning to check out. That's audibletrial.com slash D-R-O-P-P-E-D-A-M-O-N-G-T-H-I-S-C-R-O-W-D for your free 30-day trial of Audible and free audiobook. Quick little announcement for you guys. The band has released a statement about their Texas and Oklahoma shows that were supposed to take place back in April. These shows have been rescheduled for this fall. September 3rd at Stubbs in Austin, Texas. September 4th at House of Blues in Houston, Texas. September 5th at House of Blues in Dallas, Texas, and September 6th at Kane's Ballroom in Tulsa, Oklahoma. All tickets purchased for the original dates will be honored at the new dates. And if you have any questions or need some more information, reach out to the point of sale. This week, I'm very excited to bring you my conversation with the author of The Farmer's Almanac, The Unofficial Guide to Fish, Volume 6, Mother Vinegar drummer and just all around really knowledgeable music guy, 
Kevin Castles. We talk about a shit ton of topics, like what music he was into as a kid, going to his first Grateful Dead show, how he wrote his book, his first Umphreys McGee show, and what it was like opening for Umphreys. He shares some details about a very interesting project that he's working on as well. You guys are really going to love this one. Thank you so much to Kevin for your time and your support of the show. It was so much fun talking with you, and I'm really looking forward to meeting in person when we're all allowed to congregate together in public spaces. Again, there is a chat of our video, so head on over to the show's YouTube page if you're interested in checking that out. Also, I wanted to mention a few weeks ago, Kevin was on an episode of the Inside Out with Turner and Seth podcast. Rob Turner, another huge supporter of my show, and who was recently on during the Asheville recap, which I will also link in the show notes. Anyway, Kevin was on their show a few weeks ago with Ryan Stasek, taking a deep dive into Umphrey's history. If you missed that, I highly suggest you give it a listen. Lots of really great stuff. You can find a link for that in the show notes as well. Are you trying to find a place to get the word out about your shirts, pins, jewelry, interesting trinkets, band that's going on tour, or small business that's looking to connect with some like-minded folks? Dropped Among This Crowd pod would love to help, including ad time in the show, ticket giveaways, social media plugs, product reviews, and more. Dropped Among This Crowd can help you reach and be seen by tons of fellow umfreaks, musicians, and other kind folks looking to purchase from you, work with you, and support their fellow um family. Email droppedamongthiscrowdpod at gmail.com if you're interested in chatting more. So here is my conversation with author, drummer, and all-around just awesome dude, Kevin Castles. Enjoy. This is my first Zoom call. I, uh, this is like only the second one that I've done myself. So I'm still like really new at the whole Zoom. Yeah. Yeah. I'm always about 10 years behind on technology. So this is a big deal for me. (laughs) It's so awesome though, like to have this. I mean, if we're going to have some sort of global pandemic where we can't see each other, I guess it's good. We have technology. So yeah, that's one company that's doing well during all this. For sure, for sure. My favorite, I saw like a meme and like memes are just life right now. And (laughs) there's one I saw, it was like the old Scooby-Doo cartoon and they're like unmasking the villain and they're like, you know, who's behind COVID-19 and they pull the mask off and it's Zoom because nobody was using it before this. (laughs) It's like, now it's like, oh, the stock goes way up now. Sounds pretty accurate. Yeah. So how are you? I'm doing good. Just worn out. Just finished school for the day for the kids. So yeah. they're yeah. doing good. But um just starting to get used to it. I doubt we're going back to school this year. Yeah. They, they pretty much 15th, but. Yeah, they pretty much announced that they were done here in New York. They didn't like actually say it, but they said that the mark how long the marking period was gonna do and they're just doing e learning still. So Yeah. Is that, are you in New York City? I'm actually outside Buffalo. Oh, okay. So, Western New York, but still New York State. Still a shit show here, so. Still, totally, yeah, I'm sure. Bad, yeah. bad. And nobody really is, like, on the same page, which is frustrating, so. What do you mean, like, how so? Um. Well, first of all, like, with the schools, like, our school is just now, like, going to start doing e-learning, but I know, like, yeah. other school districts have been doing it, so it's going to be really interesting to see how the state as a whole approaches, like, next year. Like, are you just going to pass everybody? Are you going to have to redo it? Like, it's going to be interesting to see how they handle that. So. Yeah, yeah. My twins are a little young. They, they missed the cutoff date by, like, three weeks to be held back. And we just went ahead and pushed them ahead because they were doing so well. But now I'm starting to worry about that. But with this thing, it's kind of slowed everybody down. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like they're with everyone now. And I'm making mm-hmm. them do, they, they have extra work they can do. And so I'm, I'm making them do the extra work too. 
so they can kind of catch up and be with their classmates. So that's one good thing that came out of this, I guess. Absolutely. And it's good that you're seeing it like that and you're taking that time to, you know, help them and catch up. And yeah. my daughter's nine. So they just basically sent home like a review packet for her. So she's keeping her skills up, but she's been baking and making clothes and like doing all these other things. So it's cool for her to yeah. learn new skills and do new things that maybe she wouldn't be doing in school. So yeah, definitely. And I've cleaned every room in my house about 15 times. So for sure. <laughs> for sure going through old stuff and finding yeah, old totally. random things and <laughs> yeah putting stuff in bags to take to goodwill for sure <laughs> sure early spring cleaning yeah absolutely well i'm super excited to chat with you this is going to be fun yeah absolutely so i guess we'll uh we'll just kind of start with the beginning of your life. You said you were born in New York City, raised in Atlanta. Talk about your family growing up. Yeah, I had a pretty interesting childhood. Um, like I said, I was born in New York City and when I was really little, moved to Atlanta, which um, the only reason we were in New York City is because my dad got a, a job promotion. Uh, I have some family from the upstate, but for the most part, my family's from Atlanta or Charlotte around that area. So it was pretty cool to be up there and to say that, you know, that I was born in New York City and everyone else in my family was born in the South, Alabama and Georgia. And so, um, and we settled in Atlanta and I had a couple of tragedies when I was little. My mom died uh, right around Christmas on uh, when, when I was in the fifth grade. And that's um, awful. Yeah, my parents had split up a couple of years before that, or about a year before that, and my dad remarried, is still married to my stepmother. They've been married 35 years. I have an amazing stepsister and stepbrother that are older. Um, so a, a new family was kind of put together. Um, and my, my little brother, Phil, um, he's a, he was a couple of years younger than me. He, he also passed away when I was in college. So um, but other than that, honestly, <laughs> I had a really good childhood. Other than those two big, huge things, you know, yeah. um, I tried not to let those things, I mean, I guess I would have every excuse in the world to check out, you know, or to say, hey, I don't want to deal with life or whatever. But I kind of was motivated to do the opposite of that because I think everybody expected me to just kind of need help along the way. And, um, and everybody was always worried about me you know, how I was going to handle everything. And it, of course it was hard, but I, I just, you know, especially when my brother died and uh, when I was in college, my life was going so well that I just couldn't, it, it happened about three or four weeks before I graduated. So um, I, I pulled it all together and was able to walk across that stage. And uh, it was, it, they were tough, both, both of the, the deaths, my mom and my brother, both of them were suicides. Oh. So that added a whole new element to the, to the, to the thing. Mm -hmm. But the result is, is that like, I appreciate the smaller, the small things are the big things. That's what I try to tell people. Like mm -hmm. you know, things can change in a second, you know, mm -hmm. you can get hit by a bus tomorrow. And um, yeah. so I've learned to appreciate small things, whether it's just a joke or a laugh or a moment or whatever, and turn those into big, important, special things. And that's kind of how I've kind of approached my life. So yeah, I go. think that's a great way to be too. And you, you have to, you, uh, I, you, you just can't live and, and dwell on the sad things in life. You can't. Yeah. And without music, I honestly don't know what, but I'm the worst athlete in the history of the United States, <laughs> if not the world. So, I mean, I remember one, my one basketball season, my dad was like, you don't have to go. It was, it was like the third or fourth game. He's like, you, you really just don't have to go. Like I would get the ball and, I, and the rest of the team would go, don't shoot, whatever you do. Um, but I started playing, um, I played trumpet for a couple of years and then I started playing drums in the eighth grade. And just the, the whole point was to get a band together to play a song in the talent show. And uh, it was going to be rock and roll by Led Zeppelin. So the first thing I ever learned was that little intro to that song. And, but it ended up being Purple Haze. And I didn't even know how to use the bass pedal. So I just did it without the bass pedal. But by the time the talent show came around, I, I learned how to play. And so that was kind of my, my, my escape, my thing, my passion from then on out. So 
Nice. Did you guys win the talent show? No, we lost to uh, a a Japanese violin player and then um, a, a, a group of chorale singers, um, but uh, we did get third place. There you so go. So we had a small trophy. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so what made you like, was it just not being good in sports that made you gravitate to music or were you like always into music? I mean, I was always into it. I started listening to Iron Maiden in the third grade and still probably my favorite band. I mean, it, it just, it, it, it was in the mid eighties and heavy metal was the way I explain it to some of my younger friends is like, um, and not necessarily the, the glam metal stuff like Poison and Bon Jovi. I, I couldn't stand any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Like Iron Maiden and Black Sabbath and Deep Purple and Dio and groups like that. Um, that was kind of like the fish in the dead of those days for teenagers and for, you know, kids with long hair. That was, you know, Touch of Grey had not hit yet. So the dead was still an underground thing. And, you know, Fish was just in college, just starting. So nobody knew who they were. But that was, that was their thing. And, and like, if you talk to a lot of people my age, that they, a lot of them went through that first. And so, but it just, you know, it just, it was a total and complete escape. And um, mm-hmm. I liked it um, because uh, I liked it because it was scary. And, um, you know, I liked the imagery and, and the music was, was really, really complex and technical. And um, a lot of Humphreys McGee music sounds like that, honestly. And mm-hmm. um, so, and then when I began to play music and, and um, you know, bands always need a drummer. So the, I was always the youngest guy in the band. And so I was able to, to get in some really good bands in high school. And um, just the whole thing about, you know, it's not just a band, it's a lifestyle. You know, it, it is a lifestyle. Like I had the jackets and the posters and the, you know, the tapes and stuff. And, um, and I discovered the Grateful Dead around the ninth grade, which is the reason I'm sitting here talking to you now, I think. I think all of that started, that whole different universe of, of music and culture began around then too, so. So what made you, like, when did you find out a great, about the Grateful Dead? Did you, did somebody say, hey, you need to listen to this? Or like, who introduced you? Um, well, Touch of Grey came on the radio when I was like 12. That was okay. the big hit single. And I thought, and I heard it, and it was catchy and stuff, but I thought it was like Crosby, Stills, and Nash or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I saw the video and their skeletons. And I was like, curious. I was like, there's something, there's some depth here that I don't know. Like something's here that's weird, that is intriguing, that I don't know about. There's no reason why it should look like a heavy metal video. And the name of the band sounds like a heavy metal band, but they're playing this like dad rock stuff. Like, what is that? And I really liked the single. So I bought this, the cassette single. It was like um, Touch of Grey and then My Brother Esau on the other side. And then, um, so I got In the Dark when it came out and it, it I liked it, but it was really the imagery contrasting to the style of music is really what intrigued me. But then I bought like Go to Heaven and I was like, this this is too weird. So I, like, I, I stopped listening to them. And then what happened was my friend, my friend Ricky Cohen in the ninth grade found out how to steal cable. And uh, so we were over at his house and he, he would steal all the pay-per-views and uh, the dead would do these kind of like a precursor to a webcast. They would do these, you'd pay 30 bucks to your cable company or 25 bucks, whatever it was back then. And they would play a full concert live and you could could watch it on pay-per-view, like you would a boxing match or something like that. That's why there's so many professional dead videos from the late eighties and early nineties is because they would do these these pay-per-views. And uh, so so we watched one, it was Summer Solstice 89, um, 621-89. And it was the exact opposite of absolutely everything that I knew about the kind of bands that I listened to. There was no intro. There was no explosion and a guy leaping out over the amp and grabbing the microphone. They, they walked out. They took like 15 minutes to tune up. Jerry was smoking cigarettes. Bob was kicking his amplifier. The roadie was walking around, you know, and I was, what is this? And they, and they just slowly, it just built and built and built. And then by the time the sun started to come down, they would jam. And then it was just like, uh, it, it was, it just built to this peak. And then during the set break, they went out, they took the cameras out in the lobby. So you could see the whole lot scene and all of that. And then of course the second set happened and 
I was like a different person after that. And then, so we watched it again because it was on, it was, uh, it was uh, on a weekend. So we sat there for eight hours and the second time I taped it and like on VHS tape. And then I took the tape home and I put my little cassette recorder in front of it and I recorded the music and I memorized every note. And then from there, and my parents, when my parents started letting me go to concerts again, they, like the dead was off limits, like, yeah. you know, because they knew better. Yeah. So finally, by like 91, 92, I finally got to see them. I saw them the same month I saw Fish, which is March 92. And, uh, but by the time I saw the dead, I knew, I knew everything. And so, and then I started going on little blocks of tours and stuff like that. When was your first dead show? 3192 at the Omni in Atlanta. It was okay. all right. Bruce Hornsby was there. Um, and I, I saw some really good ones by, by the end of 1993 though, it was, it was not good, you know, but mm -hmm. when you're 17, 16, 17, 18 years old, 19 years old, it's, it's epic no matter what. You know? Right. Right. Listening back, it's like, ugh. but also, you know, there's some great moments too. So. Do you have a, a favorite show out of the, the run that you did? You said you saw like 22 shows before Jerry yeah, passed. So. You know, I was lucky to see him at like Deer Creek and Freedom Hall, and I saw him at Madison Square Garden, and Bob Dylan came out. Um, I think, think the Soldier Field run in 93, Sting opened. Mm -hmm. Jerry came out and played Tea in the Sahara, and, uh, you know, and, and the, the first night, they just did this huge, um, it was raining, and they did a, a, I think it was Box of Rain to open or something like that, but they did a plane in the band Uncle John's with a big, huge space jam in the middle, and, you know, I just remember the the imagery of the lightning and you know the silhouettes of the fans and you know the band just go taking it out to type two territory and that didn't happen happen often then at that point but they were really tight in 1993 so that that uh, that was definitely a good memory that was my high school graduation present as me and some friends went on a six show run uh, that week which was Louisville Chicago and then and then Deer Creek I was 18 so wide eyed and just Totally oh, yeah. blown away by it. <laughs> I bet. I bet. That's cool. So you started seeing fish in early '92. You said right. Okay. Yeah. So you, I mentioned in your intro for this episode that you wrote the Farmers Almanac, Volume Six, I believe it is. Yeah. So talk about from first seeing them in 1992 to having a book published in like 2000 kind of take us on that that timeline yeah well the 1992 show unfortunately was just a footnote because i stopped i, I didn't catch it i was not hooked as they say and the reason was they played the variety playhouse in atlanta and uh it was they were tight they were they were really tight and i was up front and i remember some of the songs big david bowie and um some other kind of rare songs that they did, Lullaby of Birdland, things like that. And I was with a friend that was telling me everything that was going on. But you have to understand back then, their lyrics, yeah, you know, when you, when you go from Robert Hunter to Tom Marshall, it's, I appreciate it now so much. You have to really, like the meaning's in there. You just got to dig for it. Whereas the dead, if they could lay it on out, like this song's about death, you know, or playing cards or whatever. Um, and so at the end, they, and Fish had not found that depth in their songwriting that they later found. And so I, 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 I that turned me off a little bit. But um, so what happened was after the first set, it was raining outside and, and water flooded the inside of the venue and flooded the stage and they canceled the second set. Had I seen that second set, I probably would have kept going. Uh, but they walked out in a puddle of water and they did four acapella songs and called it and, and walked into the audience and talked to the crowd and then that was it. And they said, uh, we, we promise next time we come back, we're gonna blow the roof off. So they came back and did a three night run at the Roxy, which is a very famous run, Fish at the Roxy, it's a box set. It was actually on my birthday. But by then I didn't even care. By then I didn't even care I, I, because and I'm glad that I spent my time seeing the dead as kind of lackluster as those shows were. Um, um, because Jerry died, but by 1994, like I was, I couldn't deny it anymore. Like I could not hide from their awesomeness. Like, and they, all of my friends were telling me I have to see them and this and that. And I went to go see um, a friend in Kentucky, a girlfriend at the time in Kentucky, 
and I had a copy of Junta in the car. And the sun was setting over the mountains and, and uh, it was my roommate's tape. I never really listened to it. I'd heard him play it a little. So I popped it in and listened to like Divided Sky and You Enjoy Myself all for the first time, you know, and was just mesmerized. And it, that's, it hasn't, it's, it's, it hasn't stopped since. So I saw, I spent the summer of 95 in Washington, DC, and I saw my first show as like a real fan um, in the summer of 95 in Virginia. At, in Gainesville, 6-17-95, Dave Matthews came out and did a Bob Marley song. But then the very next week, I saw my last Dead shows. And, and it was unreal because, like, the fish just felt like more my generation. Everything was more, the music was more intense. The, the, the crowd was crazier. The guitar solos were crazier. Like, everything was just more, you know, coming from a heavy metal background, much more my style than... I mean, I love all the Dead's old folk songs, but, you know, I didn't grow up in the 60s. I didn't go see Arlo Guthrie like Rob Turner did. And uh, so, you know, like I, <laughs> so there was always that disconnect there. But to see fish peaking and then see the dead falling all within a week, like even if Jerry had not died, I had made my choice. I knew that I was going to start following fish from them. So it was, it was great because I was able to see the Clifford Ball and all these amazing, you know, I saw, you know, many, many, many shows in the late 90s. And then when Andy Bernstein, um, who created the Farmer's Almanac with Larry Chasnoff and, and uh, Brian Celentano and uh, Lockhart Steele. They were throwing in the towel with the Almanac to move on to something else, and they, they put out ads to do it, uh, for looking for people to do it. And I was just at a point in my life where I could do it. I was like 24, 25. Um, and I don't know if we were the most experienced people to do it, but we just kept bothering them about it. And he's like, all right, you guys want it. Then, then you can take it. And it took me and a couple of my friends that helped me about a year. Um, and it was, I mean, I'll never do it again, just to answer that question. A lot of people ask me that. <laughs> it took over my life. We self-published, self-printed. We did, we wrote it on dial-up, you know. Wow. We would go to Kinko's, which is FedEx office now, you know, after the show and write up the tour extra, which is, you know, we would hand out these newsletters to show everybody what they played the night before because nobody had cell phones or anything like that. And it just took over my life. Like it, I almost lost my job and uh, any money we made, we put back into the book or, or back into seeing shows because we had to see shows. Uh, you know, we, we absolutely had to see a certain number of shows. Then when they announced the hiatus, we had to keep going because we didn't want it to be out of date. So we, we waited even longer. So finally it came out in uh, Christmas of 2000. And it's, it was, it's the biggest one. It's 500 something pages. We sold out 10,000 copies right away. And then, so we did another print run and refined it a little bit and fixed some error errors and um, put out another 2,500 and um, decided not to do a third print run. But it, it's unbelievable how many people still talk about it or remember it or whatever. Mm -hmm. And they hear who I am or they see me, they give me gifts you know like jewelry and stuff like that like it's been 19 years and I still hear about it and that, that I didn't expect and that's that's really really cool that that legacy is still still going on that is really cool and I think it's pretty cool that you wrote a book it's one of my goals in life so that's pretty cool <laughs> yeah it was <laughs> it was not easy but um and it was it wasn't just writing, you know, too. It was compiling and fixing data and all this. It was, mm -hmm. it was tough. Um, but obviously it's, it's something I wouldn't have changed. I'm really proud of it. That's very cool. All right. So let's change it over to talking about some Umphreys McGee. Um, yes. You talked about, you told me about your first show, uh, March 2nd, 2002 at the Variety Playhouse, I believe. Um, so talk about Vince sending you a CD. Um, you said it was to do promotion along with the book. Um, so yeah. talk about why he sent that to you and your first reaction when you listened to it. Yeah, we were doing a promotion of some sort. We did several promotions throughout 2001. Um, we did a show at the Stone Pony with Amphibian, Tom Marshall's band. And I hosted that show and we, we, we did one down here in Atlanta where I put a group together and we played some music. 
um, at a place called the Brandy House. And I think that was the thing that we were doing. We were doing some sort of trivia giveaway or something with, with the book. And there was a section in the book called From the Bottom. And it was the bands, the subgenre bands that were, that, you know, were influenced by fish, like the Disco Biscuits and, and uh, I don't know if you remember names like Uncle Sammy and, um, mm -hmm. you know, groups like that. And Umphreys was, they, I, I, they weren't in there. They, they hadn't been around very long, you know, they'd only been around about two years. Um, but I kept getting music in. And so we, some of those bands that didn't make it in the book, we gave away merchandise in as part of the promotion that we were doing. And I can't remember exactly what the promotion was. So Vince sent me a packet. I didn't ask for it. He just, he just sent it to me. Um, I didn't know know him. I'd never heard of them because being in the South, they hadn't even played down here. Mm -hmm. um, and so they sent me the newest album, which was One Fat Sucker, um, which not it wasn't it wasn't a, a good album. I still don't think it's it's a good album. It doesn't represent the band at all, honestly. And I guess that's why it's discontinued. It's like. I was telling my friend, one fat suck is the three most boring words since gluten-free cracker. You put it in and it's like, it, most of it's instrumental. There's two songs with just with a didgeridoo solo from Dr. Didge, who's, who's great, but it was just a very unfocused album. Um, however, I could tell that they were really good. I, like I could hear, because all things ninjas on there, so I could hear mm -hmm. that they were really good. I mean, it's Jake had just been in the band like, a month or two he's not even on all the tracks and the ones that he's on he's reserved big time you know and it's funny because the summer of 2000 the fall of 2000 are amazing tours it's almost like the worst songs were picked for this live album I, I so I but for some reason I could tell that they were good and so fast forward to my first show March of 2002 we were moving uh from one end of the neighborhood or the town Decatur, which is the town in Atlanta um, that it took place from one end to the other. And moving is of course the worst thing ever. And, mm -hmm. and if everyone fights when they move. So we were moving and we, we knew that they were in town and we had no plans to go. And um, because I wasn't really turned on by that album. So we were moving from one end to the other uh, part of the town. In the middle of town is a record store and they're doing an in-store performance. And it's actually on YouTube, like Miro sings No Ordinary Love and like I'm killing myself for missing it. But we, we would see the van. We saw the van in the trailer parked outside. You know, we're like, oh, that's those Umphreys McGee guys. And finally, like we've been moving all day long and like we were, you know, we were just exhausted and arguing with each other. And like the final straw was putting the bed together and like, we, like, Put the put the headboard on and the thing just came crashing down. It was just like, like we got to get out of here. Let's go see that band. All right, I, they sound like they they would be pretty good. They're talented. Let's just go see them. So we went down there and we saw a few of our other friends. Rob Perner was there. Scott Nicholson, Bushler, he was there. Uh, like all the, you know, everybody had heard of them. You know, at this point, and like within the first thirty seconds, I was blown away. They opened with Kabump and just watching Jake. Mm -hmm. I thought he was the leader. I didn't, you know, to find out he was not even an original member, wasn't even in the band for a few years, like blew me away. And they just did, they just did it. They threw it all at you. Like every, everything, you know, a lot of great covers, a lot of great originals. The first Jimmy Stewart's, um, or one of the first Jimmy Stewart's, it's actually, uh, I was showing my girlfriend the Real to Real documentary the other day, and they, they show parts of my first show in there. When they talk about how Jimmy Stewart was started, hardly anybody was there. Hardly anybody was there. I remember Stasek sitting at the uh, at the doorway, you know, meeting people as they left. But we were so blown away, and we were like, we had got, we like huddled, me and my friends, and we were like, what do we do about this? Like, why is no one here? We have to like tell the freaking world about these people. How are they this good? And there's 50 people here. This makes no sense. Like, what can we do? And we we all had like some clout within the music scene there, and and ways to spread the word and stuff like that. So we met the guys and, you know, they were our age. They were just, they were a lot like us, listened to the same kind of music, had the same sense of humor, you know, so we hooked up with them and we started to kind of um, promote, like do a street team deal um, at other shows. Like we, <laughs> I 
remember when Mo was playing the Tabernacle, we walked up and down the line waiting to get in with Unfree Sneaky posters and, you know, handing out CDs. Pretty brazen, I guess, back then, but we really worked. We believed in the music so much that we, we um, just really wanted, it, it just, it, it, things were, the planets were not aligning right if this band wasn't big within the scene. And, you know, at, at that point, we just wanted to do whatever we could to get people in, in our part of the country to listen to it. And so I know, I remember the first online, uh, when the board came out, the, the first, uh, the, the online message board that I guess is still around, um, everybody on there was from the Midwest. And suddenly, like, <laughs> this infiltration of people from the Southeast, you know, started started coming on. And everybody was like, who are these people? Like, you know, wh who are you guys? Why don't we know who you are? And uh, my friend Mike Dolan christened us the Sum Freaks, the Southern Um Freaks. And so that kind of built this, this whole little image of, of uh, you know, of this fan base in the Southeast. And they just kept, um, every time they would come back, I mean, it's just, you can do this with any town in the United States, just watch the growth of venues that they start at. And then, you know, they move to a theater and they move to a gym and then they move to, you know, and then it's the tabernacle for, for five minutes. It was pretty amazing. My second show was the first Bonnaroo. And to see them in front of, that was a major moment in their career. Major. Man, I was so excited everybody got to see them. And they killed it, you know. Um, and it's just been, uh, I wouldn't keep going if they if they weren't good. I mean, I don't have time for this. You know, I mean, I'm 45 years old and I've got three kids. But they, they are so amazing and continue to blow my mind that I continue to go 18 years later. Same. Same. I feel the exact same. So 2003, the band crashes at your house after their show at the Orange Peel. So share like one or two stories of. Yeah, that was funny. Um, they just, you know, they would rather do that than pay for a hotel room because the, our house was only um, probably like five minutes from the Orange Peel. And, uh, but there were some curvy roads. I remember the trailer kind of going back and forth a little bit. And uh, yeah, it was, it was fun. We stayed up all night and I remember Brendan and Jake going through um, uh, the, the Beatles books that were at the house and, and some other stuff. And, um, you know, we just stayed up all night hanging out and it, it was cool because we're, you know, we're all really close friends and they've, they've just, they've been really, really good friends, you know, um, over the years. And, uh, you feel you really feel like they're one of you know they're they're part of your group of friends or generation or whatever it's great to see somebody from you know like exactly your age pretty much into all the same things you know make it you know because all of us musicians that didn't make it um you know we rally behind we rally around behind them you know um so it was it was always a lot of fun we would our, one story i remember from, <laughs> from uh birmingham alabama uh we went to go see them and we stayed at the motel six and uh it's just this rundown hotel and, and uh i remember when we walked out onto the balcony and just, I, I remember thinking i wonder where the band is staying tonight you know i wonder where what hotel they got because we're here at the motel six and the door opens and out comes bayless next door they were staying <laughs> like they were staying right next door we had no idea. We're like, what? What are you doing here? And uh, so he came in our room. We watched Cheers and like hung out, you know, and then went to the show. And then the very next year, somehow we got the, or it was maybe later in the year. Yeah, it was later in the year, fall of 03. We got this exact same hotel rooms just coincidentally at the Motel Sticks. <laughs> that was really, really funny. Um, but yeah, those were, those were good fun days. They, they didn't sleep much at all. And they were, you know, partying a lot and I mean we all were you know you can when you're 27 28 years old so mm -hmm. yeah so you moved to Asheville in 2004 what made you decide to move um I wanted to well I I'd had enough of my corporate job you know think think office space you know I'd had enough and um you know I went to college around this area so I wanted to get back you know, to the mountains and open, um, I decided to open a, a music store. At the time, 
music stores were closing down, but Asheville was a much different place than most other places. And those kind of things thrive here um, and still do actually. Um, so I decided to open up a music store just to, I, at the time I thought it was my dream, but once you get it all set up, you're just, you're like working at a retail store is what it's like, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but it was really cool. We would have indoor concerts, like we would have groups come and perform acoustic shows to promote their concerts there. So we had a lot of really good groups, Richie Havens, Fishbone, Arrested Development, um, North Mississippi All-Stars, and, uh, and Umphreys played. Um, right after Anchor Drops came out, they played a show in the store. So um, that went on for a couple of years. And, um, and then the iPod came out and I saw the writing on the wall and, and, and uh, closed down and saved, you know, whatever money I had left before I lost everything. So, and, um, but I've been up here ever since and I, I, I uh, run a trivia karaoke DJ company with my friend from childhood and we've been doing it for over 10 years now. So, but it, even though there was, there was a lot of headaches from that store, there was a lot of really exciting and fun times back then too. Well, what was the name of your record store? It was called Good Music and Other Stuff. Nice. Like and um, on the live music archive, the, I think the show is actually on its 12204 early show. This is okay. the acoustic set. Cool. It's funny. You can tell them, you can, you can hear them telling, you know, Chris not to play so hard. And at one point, Joel, Brendan says, Joel, could you please get a more masculine sound out of that keyboard? <laughs> <laughs> Just really good. A bunch of shenanigans. It was, it was a fun day. Yeah, I bet. So how do you meet? Carl Engelman. Well, I had, I knew about Carl being by this point I was obviously a huge fan. I, I knew about Ali Babasahini and um, Jake and I were really close and, and still are and, and always have been. He's he's one of my closest friends. And so when he told me that Carl, see when 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 Ali Babasahini broke up, it's because Carl left to move to North Carolina for a girl, which. You know, Jake was really mad at the time, but it it is the best thing that ever happened because he joined Umphreys because of that. Mm -hmm. So he was, um, and uh, he he moved to the mountains of North Carolina. So I found out he was here, and he didn't know who I was, but I knew who he was. And so Jake put us in touch, um, and I said, "Look, man, you know, <clears throat> I play drums, and uh, I want to I want to play music with you. I've got a guitar player." Uh, Tommy Dennison, who's just a fabulous guitar player, and he sat he sat in with Humphreys and went head to head with those guys and held his own. He's, he's just an incredible guitar player. They call him the North Carolina Shredder here in, in Western North Carolina. So we went down there, and um, at the time he was putting together Bright Lights, Big City, and Party and Peeps to to give to the band. Like he's always sending Bayless songs. Um, and so the, the first session we ever did was we did a Bright Lights Big City, but it was a kind of a darker version called Bright Lights Getting Dirty. <laughs> and the lyrics were a little dirtier. Um, <laughs> but we hit it off right away and we're like, let's let's do this. And uh, we formed a, a band called Mother Vinegar and um, with Jeff Hinkle on bass that completed the lineup. And um, Carl is one of the greatest songwriters I've ever I've ever heard. He's just an incredible songwriter. And uh, the guys in Humphreys will say that too. And uh, he's a genius. Um, he does not care about people hearing his music, about making money. He hates all of that stuff. He hates all of that. Um, he just wants to write some good music and record it. And there's a lot of, I have a lot of respect for that, but it's real hard to run a band that way too. Um, you know, I love to play live. And he's such an incredible live performer. He doesn't really want to play live. So it was, it wasn't, um, I guess it wasn't meant to last, but we did have two or three really, really good years. And we had like, as a drummer who doesn't write music, to have a guy that always has material ready is amazing, you know. And um, combined with Tommy and I's metal background, we were at, we were able to create our own sound. And um, so we had about 65 or 70 originals just in like a three year period. We didn't do any covers, 
but we would redo old Alibaba's Tahini songs and we would redo, we would write our own versions of Alibaba's Tahini songs that Umphreys also would do too. Um, so that was really cool to do. And um, we, we were, then we started opening for Umphreys in 2005. For about three years, we, uh, there were some shows where we opened up for them. So like we, we did our version of Syncopated Strangers and we had Joel and Andy come on and play with us because those are the last two people you would think would come in for a sit-in, you know? Mm -hmm. Everybody wants the guitar players. Well, we're gonna bring Joel and Andy up, you know? And uh, they came out and played with us and um, we played a show in Chicago, which was uh, actually the worst show we ever played was in Chicago. We had a, um, I was so excited because all of all of my own priest friends were going to come out and see us and the band was not on tour at that time. And so we were, we did a little Midwest tour and we played in Indianapolis and we played the Mishawaka Brewing Company and then we played the Kinetic Pro Playground in Chicago and a, a, a comedian was the opening act. Mm -hmm. And he just ripped us to pieces. Oh. And that psyched me out, like that psyched us out. You know, and not only that, but all of Humphreys McGee was sitting in the VIP area in a big circular booth, just staring us down. And it was like, I mean, just imagine playing, you know, you know, whether they're our buddies or not, they're still my musical heroes, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, and it was tough though. It, that was a tough show. But of course, when you play a bad show, most people don't think it's bad. You know, they're like, what are you talking about? We had a good time. But it was cool that Jake got to come out and play play with us and play some some other vinegar songs that eventually became Alibaba's Tahini songs, and uh, he played Kabump with us. And Joel came out on guitar, so that was cool and added some some fun to it. Um, and in two thousand by two thousand seven, we we were about to make our second album, and uh, Carl decided that was it. Um, you know, I had been warned that that was going to happen. <laughs> yeah by jake you know he was just like just you know count every show is you know what you know a, a blessing because it could be your last and uh and that was the end of that and um but we were just about to record our second album and the material was just like we were really really proud of the material it was very progressive very um cutting edge very new and um that was in 2007 about a year ago, we all got back together and went in Carl's studio and recorded all of these songs. And so we've got a new album coming out. That's awesome. The first Mother Vinegar album in 13 years. And it's, it's almost done. It's been recorded completely, but it's almost done. And we're super, super proud of it. I tried to get Carl to play some shows and we actually announced a show. And then at the 11th hour, he said he didn't want to do it. He was too busy or whatever. And, you know, shame on me for thinking that that was going to happen anyway. But at the end of the day, we do have a new album coming out with, with a bunch of, of material that we've been wanting people to hear for over a decade. So that's pretty exciting. That is very exciting. I'm excited to hear it. So um, I am all about the community um, the Umphrey community. It's like the basis of my show is kind of highlighting all the different people and all the different stories that people have to share about the community and how Umphrey's has helped them in their lives. So why don't you share a moment in your life where Umphrey's personally, um, you know, were there for you? Yeah, you know, I mean, there's, there's been a lot, but you know, the last year, the last year was pretty tough year for me. I went through a divorce after, um, 20 years and, um, we were, all of us were, were close friends. So it was really hard. And, um, you know, having gone through what I went through as a kid with the deaths of my brother and mother, these feelings of loss and things like that are, your fear of loss is just always it's always there i always think mm -hmm. people are either going to leave or they're going to die or whatever and uh so to have risen from the ashes of all of that to build this great family and then have it fall apart was more devastating to me than i think it would be maybe maybe others i i, I don't know i can't really speak for anyone else but 
um, it was a pretty traumatic time. And um, right around the middle of that, Humphreys played in, in Nashville. And um, I wasn't going to go. I wasn't in the mood to go. And then I got, I got talked into to going. And uh, they just kind of, they were just, they were just so gracious. They, they, they um, took me out to lunch. You know, um, Jake and Robbie and I went out to lunch and talked about everything and just, um, they were just really, really supportive. And uh, Brendan, especially one night after the show, because when he was going through something similar a long time ago, around the Strength and Number, or I'm sorry, the Safety and Numbers album, um, you know, we would stay up and, and talk about what was going on as well. And so I, I think he remembered that because he was, um, he was like, let's go upstairs and talk. And he, you know, this was like right after the show. And um, we just talked for like two hours. And, uh, and uh, it's funny because there, <laughs> there's a picture of us right after that meeting. And um, he, I guess, digging up a lot of stuff in the past and talking about a lot of stuff in the past, he was, um, you know, it was, it was emotional for him too, you know, but I walked out of there, like, I felt great. Like he cheered me up amazingly. And there's this picture of us and he's kind of like looking a little emotional, you know, and I'm like all happy. And you know, it's like the exact opposite of what it was before we walked in there, you know, and, um, and it was just, you know, he, the guys are on the road so much and, and are so busy and don't have any time to really do anything. And for him to take the time and, and, and the thing, things that he said, he wasn't just buttering me up. Like the things that he said were, were true and were real. And I, I abide by a lot of the things that he, he said and the advice that he gave me because he had, he had been there before. And then the very next night, they, um, you know, I was back there and they were about to go on stage and he, he brought me over and like I was in the huddle. Like this, there were seven of us instead of six, which was like, so I did not feel comfortable even doing that at all, you know, but they were like, you know, and they did their ritual, wasn't a prayer, but it was whatever it is that, you know, the, the thing that they do, you know, putting all their hands in the circle before they go out on stage. And, uh, and it's funny because that's the weekend that I completely turned a corner. I met a bunch of new friends that weekend too, that were really great and that were there for me. And that's when I started to pull myself out of the, the muck, you know. And um, when I hear, you know, a lot of their songs and a lot of their music, songs like Two by Two and Out of Order and, you know, The Wait Around, obviously, and all those songs from that period, they really do, do speak to me. And um, life has just gotten better ever since. And uh, so I'll never, I'll never forget that. I think about that a lot. It comes up a lot in my mind when when I'm faced with challenges in life these days. And so they're, they're really great people. You know, they're not, they, they're not, they, they have every reason to be arrogant or to be, you know, have the rock star kind of vibe going on. And they're, they're, they're really, really close friends with each other. And that's, that's all the difference. That's why bands like Fisher are still together 35 plus years, you know, without a lineup change. I mean, they, you know, they had Jeff before that, but since 86, they've been the same four guys because they're friends. And there's other bands like, you know, the dead, you know, sometimes they want to kill each other, you know, and Pink Floyd and yes, I mean, they, they hate each other, you know, so this band, uh, Umphreys is now on their 17th year with no lineup changes uh, for a six piece, which is totally unheard of. I've never heard of that. I mean, since Miro left, that's the only change, you know, and um, like uh, Stasek says in Real to Real, it's it, you make your best music and you can improvise the best when you are getting along and friends with the people you're making music with. Mm -hmm. So, Absolutely. I mean, every, every year that goes by, they, they get better and better and they just become more and more special to me and my friends. Mm -hmm. I feel the same way. So talk about the project that you're working on going through the shows from the beginning yeah. and taking out the pieces and examining stuff more talk more about that and why you started it 
and what your plans are with doing this. Yeah, the, the plans just keep happening. What, what, what I began doing is when, when my infant, uh, well, they're not infants anymore, they're seven, but when my twin boys were infants and life was insane and um, just to get out of the house for a little bit was, was so important. So I would, I would walk around the neighborhood, go on long walks and put in music. And I decided to take a, take a band and start at the very beginning and do a deep dive and listen to their albums in order. Like listen to them like twice, the first album, then the second album. Mix in the live albums, make sure it's all chronological. I would take some of my favorite bands that I haven't listened to in a long time or bands that I didn't know that well. And just by the time you were, and, and I would only do it when I was exercising so I could pay attention. So it would take years sometimes. But you literally live inside this this band's history for, and then when it when it's over, it's like you have a completely different view and relationship of, of this band. And um, so, like, it took me like five years to do the Dead because they have so many releases. It's amazing because you live within these eras, and then I would watch videos from each era or whatever. And so now I I could I like I know everything. I mean, I, I think I did anyway, but it had been so long. So I decided to start on Umphreys, um, and I've been putting them off because, first of all, they're, I'm still seeing them, and, and I know the music so well, but it turns out I, I actually don't know the music so well because there's a lot of things I've listened to in a long time. So I started with Greatest Hits Volume 3 in 1998 and then listened to, like, four or five shows from 98 and, you know, then going sometimes five or ten shows a year plus the albums, all the way to the end. And I'm only on 2005 right now. I'm actually listening to a spring, a three-night run in the South in the spring of 2005. <clears throat> the cool thing about knowing the group is that I can, I've been texting Ryan whenever I have a question. <laughs> so I'll be, you know, on top of some hill, and I'll be like, was sweetness always inside a slacker? You know, because it is for the, these three versions I've heard from 99, Bayless introduces as a slacker, but sweetness is in the middle. You know, or I'll ask him about this show or that show, or, and he always will text me back, you know. And so then I started sending him shows that maybe he didn't remember much about. And so we've kind of, I mean, I'm the one doing the, the, the archiving and the work and stuff like that, but we're kind of doing it together. And, and it's so like uh, there'll be an interview coming out that I think you've heard part of where me and Rob Turner and Stasek sit down and specifically talk about the early years. And that's all a result of, of me going back and doing this deep dive. So there's going to be several projects coming out, one of which is going to be, at least as far as we know so far, is an album of banter. They had been wanting to do it for a long time. And I started telling Joel and some other guys some of the just hilarious, hilarious banter from the early days, most of it involving Miro, who's just a riot. And... Uh, you know, there were also less people in the audience and there was more beer on stage. So really, really funny. So Kevin Browning talked to me last year. It's like, you know, let's, we've been talking about doing an album of banter. So why don't you collect it all that you think is good and then we'll put it together, you know, and it, it's going to take a long time because a good piece of banter is like 30 seconds. So it's hard to make a whole album of that, but we are going to do it. I just don't know when it's going to, when it's going to come out but i've already i've been saving the the really hilarious pieces of banter so as far as we know now at some point in the future there will be an unfreeze mcgee release with the best of them uh the best of their banter and cutting up on stage so that's one project that's come from this and then rob turner and i have talked about doing more interview projects and stuff so who knows what will come of it but it's been really really exciting and interesting and and fun and it's just one thing i take away they were so good from the very beginning they were ridiculous I'm talking when it was just the four of them before Andy, like, mm -hmm. you know, when they, even when they were doing fish covers and stuff like that, like they were still so tight and it's, it's amazing that some of their best songs they still play live were written in 97, 98, you know, like all in time and thin air and two by two and, and Der Bluten Cat. Those are all from the very first year of Humphreys. Uh, you know, there was never a period where they were just sloppy and finding their way. It doesn't seem like. No. It's, I think it's just that energy that they have and they've had from the very beginning, that connection that they've had the whole time. I think, like you said, it's, yeah. it's about, you know, you make better music when you're with your friends. 
So I think that's yeah what it is. And and I've been the the, the period before Jake joined was is just and of course it's it's been ridiculously great since he joined. It's been it, it is an unprecedented. I mean, obviously that's that goes without saying. But when you go back and listen to the shows from the '90s, like '99, especially when you start getting into fall '99, summer 2000, is incredible. There's a couple of shows at Benchwarmers that are just unbelievable, and it's just Bayless on guitar, and it just shows you what a humble guy he is, because he steps back a lot. I mean, he's still one of the lead guitar players, but he really does step back a lot. Before Jake was in the band, Bayless was not a guitar player. You really have to go back and listen to those shows to really grasp how good this guy is. I mean, he is just an unbelievable guitar player. And, you know, you would think that Jake would be the one to come up with all the really evil technical sounding stuff, but Joel and, and Brennan were the ones writing this song. I mean, Derbluten Cat and, and Second Self and Prowler, all of those are before Jake was even in the band. You know, so to, to hear that raw sound with just one guitar, um, it's just it's really really exciting i go back and listen to it a lot you know just to hear that different perspective songs for older women which i think is an incredible live album i wish they would re-release it it annoys me to no end that those albums are not in print from uh, november of 98 so they had been around less than a year and just an incredibly stellar live album with just brendan on guitar that that's been really exciting to go back and listen to those shows yeah absolutely that's how i feel about uh like early 2017 there was like a northeast run and jake was sick he had the flu yeah so right. he didn't do any of those shows and yeah. i was we, thinking about I, that the other day yeah my husband and i were we went to the show in rochester and it it blew me away because you're hearing things differently and you know jake's not there so brendan's playing you know more and it's exactly what you said you know after i left there i'm like wow this is you're hearing new things and experiencing new parts of the band. And I always yeah. recommend to people to listen to those because it's, it's still just so phenomenal and it's great to hear, you know, like you said, Brendan more, and then also to hear everybody else, you know, in different places because, you know, Jake wasn't there. Yeah. And one of the big problems from the early days and not, not so much to, to, to the extent it was, but nobody could ever hear Joel. I mean, I remember seeing him in the clubs and he was just drowned out, you know, and, and he's just, uh, if you ever have a chance to catch one of his solo piano shows, I mean, you know, you realize what an important part of the band he is. It's the, you know, when you say keyboardist to you, that's usually not the most important member of the group, you know, that's, but he's just absolutely key to the sound. And, um, so back then, to hear those shows without that second blazing guitar, you can really hear the contributions that Joel makes and how he can how he leads the jams a lot and things like that. And um, and as far as the guitar solos, they stick to they stick to to the original uh, structure. Meaning, like if if Jake wasn't in the band and they're doing a song where Jake wasn't in the band originally, like Bayless takes that solo, like two by two and songs like that. And and like we were talking about second self and. Like if, if it's a pre-Jake song, Bayless will take the solo still to this day for the most part. Mm. Pretty cool stuff. It is pretty cool. And I'm sure people are gonna like that little fact. They'll think about that now when they're listening to songs and be like, oh. Yeah, and those are just things that I picked up by doing this deep dive. I mean, uh, and, and I can't say enough about Mike Miro. It's just, you know, he may not be the, the, the monster film master that Chris is. He's one of the best drummers in rock in my opinion. Mm -hmm. But the the touches that he adds to to the playing back then, it's just such a crucial part of why the band sounds the way they do. I mean, you know, songs like The Fuzz, things like that, his hi-hat work on Andy's Last Beer, things like that, just, just very subtle touches. He's just got such grace and such a unique personal touch. I mean, it's a great compliment to say, oh, that's this guy. Like, if you hear... If you hear a guitar player, oh, that's Carlos Santana, I can tell. Like, I can tell when it's Mike Miro. And that's even harder for a drummer, to hear a drummer and say, oh, that's him. You know, he had his own style, his own, his and his personality comes through in his playing and his humor and all of that. And, um, you know, he was only in the band for five years, and that's why people are still talking about him. That's why the band is still talking about him. He was just a crucial, crucial part of the sound. Yeah. 
Absolutely. All right. Well, I that's everything I have. Um, I don't know if there's anything else you want to chat about. Well, I just I want to say congratulations on your on your podcast and just the Thank the you. word going around about it. And I've just I've heard all about it and wanted to be on it. I can't believe I have to follow Justin J W Powell. I don't know how <laughs> it's going to be done. You know. <laughs> Um, I will say a few things about Justin. He played with Mother Vinegar for a while, and we also sat in together with Humphreys in March of 20, 2007 and, and at the uh, same show. And I played the immigrant song and completely screwed up the ending because I took my earbuds off. But um, he lives not too far from here, and, and uh, mm -hmm. he's a great keyboard player. And so it, it's been cool to kind of um, be on the same timeline as him as, as this band grows. And, um, so and yeah, we'll be doing. Um, I'm going to be hooking up with with Rob Turner, who does the Inside Out um, podcast, and we're going to be doing some Humphreys related stuff soon that we're going to release um, fairly soon. As soon as this coronavirus thing gets done, I thought coronavirus was something that Rob got after having too many beers at a Mexican restaurant, but apparently it's like it's much bigger than that. So apparently, it's a bigger deal than that. So. <laughs> Blame that Rob. It's all Rob's fault. That's right. That's right. So as soon as that cools down, we're going to have some cool stuff coming out. And um, like we did some interviews in, in Asheville, we're going to do some more hopefully in the future. So awesome. Those Asheville shows were ridiculous. That was actually my first time in Asheville. And I'm so now those were my last Umfree shows. So I'm yeah. super glad we went, especially because. Yeah, that. they skipped last year. But um, yeah, it, every year, the same same time of year, right around my birthday, which is great. You know, that's that I turned that into my birthday party. You know, they they play every year at the same time. I remember the first show there a few years ago was their first arena show, and now they're selling out two nights. So it's really really exciting. It's cool that they they set up their schedule almost like a school year. You know mm -hmm. when they're going to be at a certain part of the country at a certain time of the year. So it's a little easier to plan ahead. So hopefully yeah. we'll see see them there next year. Yeah, that'd be cool. We're we're definitely already in for it. We loved Asheville so. Cool. absolutely love to see you guys yeah. well this is really awesome thank you so much for your time sure sarah i really appreciate it yeah. and um good luck with everything and uh we'll be listening and watching <laughs> thank you so much for your support and i'm super grateful that you wanted to be on so this is great thanks yeah it was great thank you very much yeah thank you have a great day all right you too <laughs> bye